If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 119, verse 113. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along this morning. If you've been here in recent weeks, you know that Psalm 119 is a poem. It's an acrostic poem built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is week 15, which means we're on stanza 15, which means we've come to the stanza devoted to the Hebrew letter Samek. So if you opened your Hebrew copy of the Scriptures, you would open and you would find that moving right to left, because Hebrew moves right to left, not left to right, there on the right side, there would be eight verses of poetry, and the first word in each of those eight lines begins with the Hebrew letter Samak. It makes an S sound as we say it in English. In this stanza, all eight verses make reference to the Word of God. And one of the things that we've said each week is that almost every single verse in Psalm 119 makes direct reference or mention to the written Word of God. And there's a variety of terms used. They're more or less used interchangeably. There's a place here or there where maybe the psalmist is looking for a specific defect in using one of these particular words. But mostly it's just variation in a very long poem. And the dominant theme from beginning to end is that God has spoken to His people in His Word. For what it's worth, we just had a plugged-in class. When I teach our plugged-in class... The very first doctrinal idea that we talk about is, what does this church believe about the Bible? It's fundamental to everything else that happens in the life of a church. And there are many, many churches in the Bible Belt that pay lip service to the idea that the Bible is God's Word. But if you look at how they operate as a church, what they teach, how they teach, you'll quickly learn they don't really believe that this is an inspired an inerrant word from God. And we're trying to set our minds right in thinking about the Scriptures as we work our way through this longest chapter of the Bible. One thing I want to note just as we begin, we'll circle back to this, is that this Samek stanza builds on the Mem and the Noon stanzas that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. So each stanza in Psalm 119, without question, can stand by itself. It's a contained unit of Uh, writing, of poetry, each stanza can be independent. But there are places in Psalm 119 where it's actually helpful to read before and beyond to understand how some of these stanzas connect together, and I think that this is one such place. So here's the big idea of the Samek stanza. The people of God are called to walk according to the Word of God. If you claim the name Christian, if you Think of yourself as uh, somebody who believes in the one true God, the God of the Bible. The call on your life is to walk according to God's Word. Now, I admit, when we read these verses, it doesn't say anything about walking. You won't find the word walk here. But multiple commentators have noted that what the psalmist is describing in this stanza fits with the biblical idea of walking. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Psalm 119, verse 113. The psalmist says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You're my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me, 
according to your promise, that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope, hold me up, that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Father, this morning we gather together around your word, and we pray that your word would make us wise. We pray that your word would help us to see what is real and what is true and what is good. And we pray that your word would shape our lives, shape the way that we walk on this earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's mid-November, and I just want to give you a countdown to a few important dates coming up. As of this morning, you have 11 days till Thanksgiving, so I hope you're ready. I hope you've made plans and you know where you're going and what you're eating. As of this morning, you have about 33 days until Christmas. How many of you have a tree up in your house already? How many of you say it's not Thanksgiving yet? Why would I put a tree up in my house? About half and half. As of this morning, you have roughly 250 days, I know you're excited about this, until the Olympics in Paris next summer. One of the things that I've always thought about the Olympics is that it would be a good idea in each event to have a regular person competing in every single event. So we just pull somebody off the street of Paris and we say, hey, you're in the 400 meters. And we're going to put a regular person out there with all of these amazing athletes just to gauge how amazing they really are. Sometimes when you watch them as a group, you just lose sight of how impressive they are. So there's a number of exciting events coming up. If we were to pull you off the street and throw you into the Olympics, maybe you would uh, like to be in the badminton competition. I don't know if that would be your game. There's one hand in the back right away. Badminton, that's your sport. Maybe you would be interested in rhythmic gymnastics. You like the ribbon and the dancing and all the rest. Some of you, I don't think that's quite your game. Uh, some of you might opt for table tennis. We have a few guys here at the church that are cocky enough to think that they could play table tennis in the Olympics. And I would love to see some of those guys playing table tennis in the Olympics. New event for this year is called Breaking. Not breaking things, but break dancing. Break dancing will be an Olympic event, and some of you would break a lot of things if you tried to participate in this event. I'm excited about three-on-three basketball. That's the old man version of basketball. You don't have to run all the way up and down the court. You just sort of stay where you're at, and you let someone else take it back, check it back behind the line, and then you play off the same goal. Here's an interesting event, new, brand new event, never been in the Olympics before. I had to write the title down because it, I just have a hard time remembering this. This is not just speed walking. This new event is called Marathon Race Walk Mixed Rally, or Relay. Marathon Race Walk Mixed Relay. And the way it works is a team has one male and one female, and they are race walking. They're speed walking. And the only rule in speed walking is you can't come off the ground. You have to have part of your feet on the ground at all times. And if you've seen this, you know they do a lot of moving while they're walking. But you've got to have part of one of your feet on the ground at all times. You can never be airborne. So in this team, one male, one female, 
The male will go first. He will speed walk 10 kilometers. I'm told it's right around the Eiffel Tower. And then his female teammate will take the next 10 kilometers. And then when he's all recovered, he's got another 10. And then the female competitor will end it with the final 10. 40 kilometers total, speed walking around the Eiffel Tower. Now, if you've never seen people compete in this kind of event, maybe not a marathon mixed relay, but just individual speed walking, and you would like to see what it looks like, after church and after lunch, go to Dillard's. Park outside the, what way is it? I don't know if it's east-west. Park outside one of the doors. I don't think it really matters. And watch the men go in. Because the men are speed walking. They're walking as fast as they can in. They're on a mission for one thing. And if they don't have it, they're going to leave quickly. They're not going to be looking for anything else. If they find that thing, they're going to get it and they're going to be out. In and out as quickly as possible. The women do not participate in speed walking. At Dillard's, I can tell you this from experience because I live with a bunch of women and I've been to Dillard's with them. There's nothing speedy about it. Walking with a woman through Dillard's is more like the biblical idea of walking. What is the biblical idea of walking? Well, in the Bible, when you walk, the idea is that you're making slow, steady progress toward a goal. Not necessarily in a straight line. Lots of detours, lots of meandering, lots of looking at other things, but slow and steady progress toward a goal. You understand that in the Bible, the idea of walking describes the entire manner of your life, the entirety of who you are as a person and how you live in this world, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you feel, the way you relate to God, the way you interact with God's Word, all of those things in the Bible are part of your walk. In the Bible, there is often a contrast made between the way you used to walk before you met Jesus and the way you walk now after you met Jesus. And you understand, that has nothing to do with your strut or your stride or how fast or how slow you walk. That's describing the manner of your life, your walk. Maybe you were saved at a very young age, and maybe there's not a lot of contrast in the way you used to walk and the way you walk now, but maybe there's a contrast, at least there ought to be a contrast in the way you walk and the way the world walks. And you say, this person walks different. When I thought about this passage, and multiple commentators connected it to the idea of walking, what I originally wanted to do is walk you from Genesis to Revelation, and look at examples of this word walk. And I started to go down this rabbit hole, and I started to pull verses and examples, and very quickly that little mini illustration became larger than the whole sermon. Because in the Bible, this is a dominant, prominent, pervasive theme. I'm telling you, you can look at every period of redemptive history. You can start in Genesis. You can move all the way to the end of the Bible, the very final chapters of the book of Revelation, and you can trace this idea of walking all the way through the Bible. We don't have time to do that this morning, so I'm just introducing the concept to you that your walk in the Bible it's the entire manner of your life. It's making slow, steady progress toward a goal. There ought to be a contrast 
in the way you used to walk, in the way you walk now, in the way that people in the world walk, and in the way that you walk. And what the psalmist is telling us essentially in this psalmic stanza is that the Word of God will change the way that we walk. Not your strut, not your gait, not your stride, but it will change the entire manner of your life. It will change your walk. So the question that we're going to ask and answer is simply this. What does the psalmic stanza teach us about the Word of God and our walk as people of faith? We will not spend equal time on all of these ideas. The first one will be brief. The second one will be rather extended. So number one, the Word of God gives us wisdom and light to see what is real, what is true, and what is good. If that sounds familiar, it's probably because you were here with us the last two weeks or you listened online. We looked at the Mem stanza and the Noon stanza. The last two weeks, just moving one stanza at a time. All I want you to see is that these ideas are connected and they build together. In the Mem stanza, you can look up in the Bible. The psalmist says in verse 98 that God's commandments make him wiser than his enemies. Verse 99, he has more understanding than his teachers. Verse 100, he has more understanding than the aged. And when we worked through these verses, we said he's not being cocky. He's not being arrogant. He doesn't think everyone else is dumb and he's the only smart one. Instead, he has found a source of transcendent wisdom in the Word of God that goes above and beyond what any human being can offer him. He's found the ultimate source of wisdom and it's the Word of God. And so he concludes in verse 104, through your precepts, I get understanding, wisdom from the Word of God. Look what he says in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me how I ought to walk his feet, his path. You understand he's not just walking to the restroom in the middle of the night and all the lights are off and he doesn't want to stub his toe on the corner of the bed. He's looking at life and his walk in this world and he's saying, I need to know what's real and what's not real. And I need to know what's good and not good. And I need to know what's true and what's not true. And the Word of God is a lamp. It's a light that helps me see these things. You need to understand in your walk through this world, it would be a good thing for you if you had wisdom. And it would be a good thing for you and those around you if you could see what is real and what is true and what is good. And the psalmist has been telling us in recent weeks You can find all of these things in God's Word. You can find wisdom. You can find a light to illuminate what is real and what is true and what is good. And you can find these things in the Scriptures. So number one, gives us wisdom and light. Number two, the Word of God empowers us to fight the temptation to live as double-minded people. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you face this temptation every day to live as a double-minded person. Bible would say if you're not a follower of Jesus, you are single-minded. You're focused on your flesh and the world and following the prince of the power of the air. But those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have to fight and wrestle with this temptation to be double-minded. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 113. He says, I hate the double-minded. I hate the double-minded. If you didn't read the rest of it, this stanza, 
you may think, well, he sounds mean. And he sounds a little spiritually arrogant. And he sounds a little bit uh, denigrating towards those who are struggling with various things in life. It sounds a little bit judgy of him. Maybe when you read about this double-minded business, you think about a man named Elijah. Do you remember Elijah in the Old Testament? Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal. We love this story in 1 Kings 18, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And we love it because there's trash talk. Some of the best stories in the Bible have really good trash talk. And we love it because it's 1 versus 850, and the odds are overwhelming Texans. We remember the Alamo, the outnumbered forces, and we say this is a great hero story, 1 versus 850. We love the ending where the fire falls from heaven. This is how the story starts. Ahab, wicked king Ahab, he sent to all the people of Israel and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. I think Elijah could walk into a lot of our churches and say the same thing. How long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? How long are you going to walk in this room on Sunday morning and sing the songs and fill out the sermon outline and then walk into school or work tomorrow as if those things never happened and you didn't believe it at all? How long are you going to be double-minded? The psalmist says, I hate the double-minded. Lest you think that he's mean and judgy and thinks that he has it all together, I would just direct your attention to something you find in the book of Psalms, Psalm 86. David wrote this. He says to God in Psalm 86, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. That's a lot of Psalm 119 talk, isn't it? Teach me. The psalmist in Psalm 119 has been asking God to teach him. Teach me your way. That's one of the words Psalm 119 uses to talk about the Scriptures. Teach me your way that I may walk in the truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. If you do that, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I'll glorify your name forever. Why would David, the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. Why would David pray that God would unite his heart, do you suppose? We know he was a man after God's own heart. He didn't chase idols, but we also know he made some really big mistakes in his life. He committed some really serious sins in his life. I think when you read about David and you read the things he wrote in the book of Psalms, it's pretty obvious that he was self-aware enough to know that he struggled with the temptation to be double-minded. That's why he asked God to unite his heart. He felt his heart to be divided. I think David would echo the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 7, Paul says in Romans 7, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I want to do the right thing, but I'm, I'm wrestling with it. It's not as easy as I thought it would be. I mean, I did the baptism, I joined the church, I'm having my quiet time, but I want to do what's right, but it's hard. Evil lies close at hand. Paul said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That sounds like Psalm 119 to me. I delight in your word. The psalmist says that over and over and over in Psalm 119. I delight in your word in my inmost being. 
but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's wrestling with this experience of being a Christian. And he's saying, man, I want to follow Jesus. I want to believe the truth. I want to live my life for God's glory. But sometimes I don't do it. I have this indwelling sin, this divided heart, this double-mindedness that I have to fight against. I think when the psalmist says in verse 113, I hate the double-minded, I don't think he's just looking out there. I think he's also looking in here. There's a man I've told you about before. His name's Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a Russian man. He lived during Stalin's horror over Soviet uh, Russia. And he was a political prisoner. He dared to criticize the communists and Stalin, and he paid for it. He was imprisoned. He wrote a book about his imprisonment called the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, an archipelago is a group of islands, and he said these Soviet gulag prison camps were like a series of islands, and they would just ship us from one to the other. And he describes the horrors that he suffered in these gulags, and it's horrific. And you might think that somebody like Solzhenitsyn would come out of that and say, those people, they're the evil ones. Instead, he came out and he said this, he said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Look, you and I live in a day and age where... The one sin you can't commit in our culture is to point your finger at anything and say that's wrong. You can't be judgmental. You can't make moral judgments about other people. You can't say this is wicked, this is unbiblical, it's ungodly. That's almost the one unforgivable thing in our culture. And you need to understand and I need to understand that biblical Christianity will always have the courage and the conviction to say sin is sin. Sin is sin. When the Bible speaks, we're not afraid to speak. That takes some courage. Biblical Christianity will also have the integrity when pointing out there at sin to point in here at our hearts and to say, that line of good and evil runs right through my heart. And wickedness and sin and evil is not just a problem out there. It's also a problem here. Now, I don't agree with all of Solzhenitsyn's conclusions, but I agree with that one. And I think the psalmist would echo it. When he says, I hate the double-minded, I don't think he's just thinking about those bad people out there. I think he might just be looking in the mirror. Saying, I feel this division in my heart. It's not something that would honor the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 115. He follows it up in verse 115. He says, depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandment of my God. Again, you can read that and understand the psalmist to think that evildoers are the problem. 
I think the, the psalmist can walk and chew gum here. I think he recognizes the division in his own heart. And he sees these evildoers around him and he knows if I hang out with these people, they are going to fuel this temptation. This double-mindedness in my life. I've told you about a man named Thomas Manton. He was a Puritan preacher. He wrote three huge volumes on Psalm 119. I'd love to tell you I've read all of what he said about Psalm 119 as we've gone through this series, but it's too much. I haven't read all of it. I've read some of it. And one of the things Manton said is this. If we intend to walk constantly with God, we should keep at a distance from wicked men. Separation from them is necessary for a conjunction with God. If they be not God's, they should be none of yours. He's commenting on verse 115. It's the only verse in Psalm 119 where the psalmist speaks not to God but to wicked people. And he says, depart from me. He understands the influence that these people could be in his life against his devotion to the Lord and fueling this double-mindedness. Now, you, you hear that, you read verse 115, you say, depart from me, you evildoers, and you read the Manton quote, he's a Puritan, he says, if they're not God's, they shouldn't be yours, and you say, that's great, that's great church talk, it's the kind of thing a preacher would say, I got to wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, and I got to go to work in the oil field, and there's some ungodly people that I'm going to work with, and some of you in this room say, I got to wake up tomorrow, and I got to go to school. Guess what? Not everybody at school is godly. i got to be around wickedness all day long. Some of you are thinking about Thanksgiving. I told you it's 11 days away, and you're thinking, I'm going to be around some wicked people. I'm going to have dinner with family members who don't love God. They don't fear God. They want nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And I'm going to sit across the table from these people. How in the world am I just going to depart from these people and separate from them? To which I would say, and I think the psalmist would say, we're not telling you to cut all of these people out of your life completely. And we're not saying that we're going to form a commune like a, an Emmanuel neighborhood where only godly people are allowed to live, and it'll be so perfect there if we can get rid of all the bad people. We're not saying that you should shun people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. My goodness, we think that you should go out and tell them the good news about the gospel. What we are saying, if we listen to this verse, is maybe we should give careful thought to the people that we allow closest to us. Maybe when it comes to marriage, we should be very, very careful that we don't unite ourselves to wicked people, ungodly people. And maybe when it comes to dating, we should be very careful not to unite ourselves with wicked people. Maybe when it comes to our closest friends, our best friends, the people we tell our deepest secrets to and the people that give us advice on our lives, maybe we should be very careful not to associate with wicked people in that context. It's not to say you're not going to work with these people, they're not going to live next door to you, they're not going to be in your family. It's just to say to those people that you allow to shape your life the most, maybe you should say, verse 115, depart from me evildoers. Can I give you a challenge being that we live in the 21st century and we carry around screens and we live on our screens all the time? Maybe when it comes to the influences that we take in through our screens 
social media, streaming, movies, TV show, whatever. Maybe we should be very careful that we don't invite wicked people to influence us through what we constantly intake. And we live on our screens. Maybe when it comes to screen time, verse 115 would be helpful. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. I think verse 114 sums it up. Look at verse 114. It says, you're my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. There's one clue that makes me think David might have written Psalm 119. He's using military language here when he talks about God being his hiding place and his shield. Hiding place is a way that you avoid conflict. That would be the idea of saying, depart from me, evildoers. I don't want this influence in my life. I'm going to find a hiding place in the Lord and in his word. And he says God's word is his shield. Trusting in the Lord is his shield. It will protect him from the influences that will certainly come his way. I hate the double-minded. I love your law. You're my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. We'll move more quickly with the last two. What does the Psalmic stanza teach us about the Word of God in our walk as people of faith? Number three, the Word of God moves us to fear God because of the certainty of judgment. The Word of God is intended to move you to the position of fearing God because of the certainty of judgment. There's actually two ways this happens, I think. One is an indirect path and one is a direct path. In the indirect path, nobody shows up and starts preaching hellfire and brimstone. Nobody comes in and says, God's about to come down in wrath and fury. The indirect path was the experience of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 when he had a vision of the Lord. And what he saw was the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there was smoke and there was cherubim and they were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. He saw a vision of God's holiness and immediately that quick he recognized his sin. All they spoke of was God's holiness in his character. And he immediately realized that he fell far short of God's glory. And he immediately said a word of judgment on himself, woe is me. He took two spiritual truths, the holiness of God and his own sinfulness, and he put two and two together in the spiritual sense, and he realized, I'm a man under judgment. That's the indirect route to fearing God and knowing the certainty of judgment. There's also a direct route. There's many places in the Bible that simply speak directly and plainly and clearly to the fact that judgment is coming on the wicked. And you've come to one of those places. Psalm 119, verse 118. You spurn all who go astray, from your statutes. If any go astray from God's statutes, God will spurn them. Verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Dross is the junk that comes off the top of gold or silver as you smelt and it's the stuff you're trying to get rid of. You want nothing to do with it. You want the gold or the silver. So you scrape the dross off and you discard it. Psalmist says, there's going to be a refining that takes place, and God's going to be done with the dross. He's going to discard it. 
Look what he says in verse 120. This is where it gets very personal. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. You notice that's not second person or third person. He's not saying you should fear. and He's not saying you should be afraid. He's not saying those people out there. Remember, we talked about this verse 113, I hate the double-minded. Who's he talking about? Well, the conclusion that he reaches down in verse 120 is that he's trembling in fear and he's afraid of God's judgments. Why would he end up there? Because he knows that he's a double-minded man. He knows that he's gone astray from God's commandments. He knows that he has disregarded God's word. He has fallen short of God's glory. He's fearful of judgment. This is a good place for me to call a time out. And just remind you that when we're looking at Psalm 119, we're looking at the Old Testament. We're in the Old Covenant. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there is a tension that runs literally from the opening chapters of Genesis to the very end of Malachi. And the tension that runs through the Old Testament is never resolved in the Old Testament. The tension is, how can God rightly, justly punish sin and forgive sinners. It runs from Genesis to Malachi. There's tension. You see it, for example, in the book of Exodus. You remember when Moses had got the Ten Commandments and the people made the idol with Aaron and he came down, Moses, and he broke the Ten Commandments and he pulverized the idol and he made them drink it and then he prayed for the people because he loved the people. He interceded for them and he went back up to get a new copy of the law. When he went back up, Moses said to the Lord, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. We're with you. We're not going anywhere without you. And then Moses asked God a question. He said, God, would you please show me your glory? I want to see your glory. And this is what we read. The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him, Moses, there. Moses in the cleft of the rock, hiding. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, but, who will by no means clear the guilty? Do you feel the tension in that verse? How can all of that be true? Who is it but the guilty who need forgiveness and mercy and grace and patience? It's the guilty who need those things. And the Lord says to Moses, I am all of those things, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm patient with my people. And he says, I'm not going to clear the guilty. And that tension runs all the way through the Old Testament from the Garden of Eden to the book of Malachi. It runs all the way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until you get to the story of the crucifixion. Paul looks back on the crucifixion of Jesus and Paul says this, this was the moment. That's where the tension was resolved. That's where all the uncertainty went away because it was at the cross 
where Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He carried our sin and our transgression. He was cursed for us. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath that should have fallen to us. The guilty were not cleared. The guilty was punished because Jesus was made sin for us at the cross. Why? So that God, to sinners, could be merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger and patient and kind and forgiving. And the only way that all of that holds together is to look at the cross. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, as he wrestles with these things in Romans 3, he says it's at the cross where you see God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sin was dealt with fully and finally so that God could justify in grace and mercy an undeserving people. So that tension runs right up to the cross, this fear of God and this understanding of judgment. I have one last point. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, You never repented of your sin and believed the gospel. You understand that there is a holy God. You understand that you are not holy. You have fallen far short of His glory. You understand that the Bible gives you every reason to believe and to know and to expect that a day of judgment is coming. You understand that there is a way of escape from that judgment. So that you can receive not justice from God, but mercy and grace from God. The only way that you can receive that is to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus. And if you've never done that, we plead with you to do it today. To repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus, the one who died to save you. Last truth, what does this stanza teach us about the Word of God in our walk? Word of God reminds us that we can only walk according to the Word of God if God upholds us. We're dependent. This is the heart of this stanza. We'll be very brief. Verse 116 and verse 117, right in the middle. Starts off talking about hating the double-minded and evildoers be be away from me. He comes down and he talks about the certainty of judgment and he's fearful. But look what his prayer is in the middle. Verse 116, uphold me according to your promise that I may live. He doesn't think he can hold himself up. He knows that he needs God to uphold him. Verse 117, hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. As a people of God, we're dependent on God to support us. In life and certainly in salvation, there was a man named Edward Moat. In 1834, he wrote a hymn that you've probably sang before, and he talked about this idea of God upholding His people and making them secure. He said this, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me, they hold me up, they uphold me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He is my hope and my stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground 
is sinking sand. Save the rock that is Jesus Christ. Save the God who upholds His people. Save the God who will uphold us according to His promise that we might live. One last verse and we'll end. Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David. It's another idea you find in the book of Psalms and a psalm we know that was written by David that makes us think David wrote Psalm 119. Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a man, talking about walking, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand.